0: And this is Burned by Books. (music) To encounter Alexandra Kleeman's newest novel, Something New Under the Sun, is to fundamentally change your expectations for what a climate novel should be. In Alexandra's Imagining, the work of climate fiction is no longer simply apocalyptic visions of a broken planet. Rather, something new under the sun preserves the pleasures of the novel, its domestic focus on everyday lives, its curiosity about how community and society reveal themselves even in a single intimate relationship, a propulsive plot with real stakes, and the formal pastiche that has come to distinguish contemporary fiction. This new kind of climate fiction balances the demand for an awakening to the present dystopia ravaging much of the planet with art's ability to reframe what defines a meaningful life. Her story is set in a California much like ours, riven by droughts and fires, but this California has run out of water, leaving corporate interests to fill the gap or the tap, that is. Within this ecological context, Alexandra draws out the story of a lost novelist and a former child actor, a sea in their personal lives, but increasingly convinced that there is a mysterious plot afoot to hide the consequences of a world without water. In our interview, Alexandra and I discuss privacy in the age of omnipresent self-surveillance. We talk about art's way forward in grappling with climate decline, the fun and practice of writing funny, the Flint water crisis, the horrors and delights of living in Staten Island, and so much more. You are in for a real treat. Let's start the show. Welcome back. What a pleasure it is to welcome Alexandra Kleeman to the show. Alexandra is the author of Intimations, short stories that Robert Coover called brilliantly crafted nightmares about the dissolving of reality. Her first novel, You Too Can Have a Body Like Mine, was awarded the 2016 Bard Fiction Prize and was a New York Times editor's choice. In 2020, she was awarded both the Rome Prize and the Berlin Prize. She is currently assistant professor in the MFA program at the New School. Alexandra's latest novel and the subject of our conversation today is Something New Under the Sun, which you've likely already seen atop the must-read lists of pretty much every publication worth reading. It's just as likely that you've seen the stunning cover, a man engulfed with a graphic overlay of dazzling flames in the staff recommendation shelves of your local bookstore. It is that kind of novel. Something new under the sun is set in a place and time like ours, in a California racked by fires and droughts, and where the West Coast water supply has all but run dry, leaving an opening for corporations to develop a synthetic water, which appears in everything from restaurants to the public water supply. Enter Patrick Hamlin. East Coast novelist of middling fame, who has come to California to observe the transformation of his novel into a feature film. What he believes is a consultancy position turns out to be a PA job, ferrying around the temperamental star of his film, the former child actor Cassidy Carter. Patrick and Cassidy's strange and strained acquaintanceship will lead them to uncover a vast conspiracy, both of Hollywood and corporate water interests. Meanwhile, Patrick's wife and daughter have escaped to a commune where the lost species of the earth are constantly mourned. Alexandra brings us into this mostly familiar world both as a clarion call to our wounded planet and as a provocative and witty examination of how our relationships, intimate and otherwise, rely on the same kind of care and vulnerability that the environment desperately needs from us. Her voice is electric equally compelling in punchy dialogue and vivid portraits of a landscape on fire. She manages to snap jokes while convincing us that we are long overdue in beginning the process of mourning what has been lost from the earth. Alexandra has given us a new kind of climate change art, and we're lucky for it. Welcome to the show, Alexandra.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'm really glad to be here.
0: Well, we're very excited to have you, and um, I wanted to start out with a question that is sparked by something that Ruman Alam said on this show. He said that all fiction is climate fiction now, whether the author intends it to be or not. Yours is a purposeful climate disaster novel, the fires of California, droughts, the coming water shortages. Um, But do you agree with Ruman? And is the transition of our art into climate art one of the fundamental changes that needs to happen in order to address our planetary crisis?
1: Yeah, you know, I love Ruman's book, and I especially love the way that it showed that the pressures of climate change are narrative pressures. They're going to force us into different relationships with those around us. And for that reason, um, I, I think that it calls for literature to take on a different form and to reflect um, the, the ways in which these pressures will play out, which is alternately large-scale changes to everyday life, but mm-hmm. an increasing mundanity to um to the crisis, to the catastrophe that forces us suddenly into, um, an emergency and adaptive situation. Um, one thing I do wonder about though, is whether, um, it really is becoming the norm that climate change is, um, depicted in, in our literature, because I think that there's still a way in which, um, the conventions of domestic realism are kind of at odds with, the task of depicting these sorts of unusual but increasingly regularized events, sort of uh, in the way that Amitav Ghosh points out in his book, The Great Derangement, that our idea of how people's lives unfold against a fairly steady background um, uh, doesn't admit the sort of shifting and increasingly precarious uh, eruption of background into foreground that we're seeing recently. So I think there's still some change to come in terms of, of our literature becoming one of climate change, but I do think it would be the direction we should move in.
0: Yeah, I I agree. And and your point about Gauche's book um, makes me think of Tim Winson, who's a literary critic, who writes very thoughtfully about climate change as a scalar problem. It's too Mm. vast and too planetary for the average person to comprehend in their daily lives. They often can't see the coming disaster because it's too totalizing. And therefore, it's difficult to convince the general public to make, as you say, the profound changes to their lives that needs to happen. Happen. Because the novel um, is a, genet- a largely domestic genre and it's concerned with the lives of a few people and in, in great minutiae, um, but it can also, I think, uh, do thinking on a larger societal scale. If we're going to move, as you say, more literature in that direction, do you think the novel is a form that can do it? Um, can it balance those two things?
1: I think so. I, I think that the novel um, is our tool for understanding and mapping and representing what our lives look like. I think that um, on a personal basis, we have very little ability to picture ourselves within the whole. And um, these apprehensions of wholeness or of connectivity come in flashes as we sort of are popped out of our insular and individually oriented gazes um so because the novel is made to travel between gazes made to link things that aren't um on their surface linked perhaps and um made to sort of represent the world uh in whatever version of the world that we believe that we're living through Mm -hmm. i I think that it it can do that i think that we have to figure out on a project-by-project basis where we can break the rules and what that will do to expanding our understanding of, of the world that's being represented and the type of reality that's being represented
0: I actually think you, you do a wonderful job dramatizing this with the, with the sort of parallel story of Allison, Patrick's wife, and his daughter, Nora, um, at the commune Earth Bridge, where residents practice communal mourning for the lost species of the planet. Um, but she puts a finer point on it when she asks the director how he decides every day how many animals he's going to publicly mourn with the residents. She says, how do you make sense of it all? The information in the data, and I love that. How do you decide when it's time for a loss to be mourned, and when do you need to wait to declare it because there's still something bigger to lose? And her, uh, he responds in such a great comic line um, that he tries to keep it at three max, three three per day. Um, but in the kind of like his throwaway and her utterly serious question, um, it made me think that. The problem is understanding the link between the information and the data and then the data in the morning. Um, And I and I wonder whether you were trying to think that through with her story.
1: Absolutely. I mean, um, the information infrastructure that we have in place now is, you know, one of these tools that will be key to us wrapping our minds around a crisis that is planetary and global and, and happening at an utterly different scale from the individual or neighborhood or family or, um, oh, all of these modes that we're most comfortable with using and that come most instinctively to us. Um, but at the same time, that information infrastructure, uh, it, it has an inhuman quality. It has an overwhelming quality. Um, and i think that in this book you keep coming up against characters who are having trouble sizing their situation to Mm -hmm. their comprehension like Mm -hmm. it's as though our mind is a cookie cutter trying to make something out of the world that we can um we can consume comfortably you know a mouth-sized cookie instead of a world-sized cookie (laughs) Um, and um i i think that you know the earth bridge solution of keeping it to three on the one hand that's an offhand comment that's a joke but on the other hand i think there is a real question about um what is the level of information that we need to make a problem feel real and concrete what's the level of information we need to make it feel like something we can act upon instead of something that overwhelms us and crushes us completely. And in that sense, the the three per day and the regularity of it and the daily presence of it does seem like a shift in how we um, suture our mundane experience or everyday experience to this larger and world-sized problem. Mm, and now, whether it causes people at EarthBridge to, to act in a way that changes the world, I'm not totally sure, but it does seem like a, a truer or more accurate way to live in this time.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the question, isn't it? Because on one hand, we think uh, that here's this pure experience of it. And as you say, there's like a digestible amount of it. You mourn it together. You have a purpose. And yet it seems as I, I don't want to use this word lightly, but as kind of feckless as the other side of it Patrick just sort of like bumbling through California, <laughs> hoping to achieve some some next step of fame and and maybe befriend you know a star or two um, and both of those kind of seem ill equipped to deal with it
1: yes yes um i I think that you know this question of what lies between this um habitual and uncorrectable attachment to our old goals and to sort of giving up those goals and not really having, um, something specific to put in its place, new goals. Um, that's the problematic that the book churns through. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And in, in my mind, um, the person who has the most handle on what these new rules might be is nora who who is the child and who doesn't give us um a fully developed like uh ethical program to follow instead but who knows that both solutions are dissatisfying Mm -hmm. um i think that the key is for example in reorienting our um, valuation of uh progress like from from the economic from from public success in the public sphere uh to the communal the personal and to something like for example not a gdp measure but um a measure of happiness a measure of care or longevity or Mm. these other things that really uh reflect whether we're thriving or not whether we are well
0: (sighs) yeah and it's um so i I sort of funny anecdote somewhat embarrassing to me but um i went into class one day and and was had read this story that gen uh z was was mad at like gen x's jeans or something that they were not like a good fashion and and i said are you all on board with this and they they said Why are you asking us about this? We're 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 having to deal with the climate catastrophe that you left for us, and your this article makes it seem like we're we're in a fight about gene fashion. And I thought, okay, like clearly the younger generation is like Nora; they understand fecklessness when they see it, Um, and they want something different. And and they're gonna you know depend on new ways of measuring that are not GDP linked.
1: It, yeah. So I think that oftentimes we're most comfortable talking about generational conflict in, in these very shallow terms, like uh, it's fashion. That's what one generation is wearing that another generation hates, or it's this um, friction between surface level details, how someone talks, the slang they use um, mm-hmm. and things like that. But really there's a much deeper uh, rift there that all of this sort of Service level generational discourse covers up, which is that um, a lot of the basic assumptions about what success means or what um, what growth and progress means at a mm-hmm. personal and societal level do not hold for this new generation, and that gives me hope because I think that um, these are ideas that you know we've worked to denaturalize um, in. In our analysis and our reading and scholarship and, and in our own lives that the coming generation just doesn't hold. They see right through it. And um, if, if something good is coming, I think it comes largely as a result of, of this coming generation, and what they're going to do to the world.
0: It's interesting that you talk about the the rhetoric of progress, because a colleague of mine in environmental science uh, has just written a a big article for the Journal of American um, Environmental Studies, and it is about what he calls basically the short History of the narrative of progress, and that this—that um, one of the major things that needs to happen is a kind of undoing, as you say, denaturalizing of that narrative of progress, and that it is—it is not a long portion of humanity's lifetime, and certainly not in the in Earth time. But mm-hmm. it, um, but in any case, um, one of the things that that you really highlight in a way that is frightening in its its prophecy is the coming water shortages And I don't know if you're familiar with the movie, The Big Short, but it dramatizes the crash of the subprime housing market and the subsequent Great Recession. And there's a quote at the end of the movie that tells us about the the life of one of the real-life investors in the movie, quote, Michael Burry is focusing all his trading on one commodity, water. I remember thinking that this detail was fanciful at the time, designed to provoke but now it seems prophetic. When you were writing this, did you draw from news about the future of water? And are you worried about uh, that your novel will become prophetic?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I grew from news. Like one thing that was going on while I was writing was the Flint water crisis. And um, to me, this crisis, which was provoked by the substitution of a local cheaper source Of water um, in the city of Flint, Michigan, for the one um, that they had been using before, which came from Detroit. Uh, The new water that they were using um, had a different composition, different pH balance, and interacted differently with the old lead pipes that they um, have throughout the city's infrastructure and started to leach lead out and into the water supply. It it was years of residents noticing our our water is not clear, our water has a taste, we're experiencing health problems, you know, related to lead poisoning, before anyone paid attention to that situation. And I I think that it points, for one thing, to this logic of substitution that we're so comfortable with Mm -hmm. Um, as consumers. Like, if, if our preferred brand isn't there, let's use the other brand. Like, these things are all equivalent, and we can have preferences about them, but we place a lot of trust in our infrastructure and in the mode of delivery um, that our government and locality chooses. So I, on the one hand wanted to talk about the water supply in this way, the specificity of it, the inexact replication of -hmm. of things that we desperately need. But, uh, you know, as I wrote, and even now new news comes up all the time. Like last I heard the Koch brothers are, are now investing in water desalination and, um, and water speculation, very bad sign when the Koch brothers do anything. Um, and then there's news, um, too recently, like in California that, um, Mendocino County, for example, has been busing water in from a neighboring area because, uh, their water supply, their, um, their local water supply has been insufficient for their needs due to the drought. And, um, just now, I think, uh, this neighboring locality has ceased busing water over because they're having their own shortages. So, you know, our, our systems are more fragile than we imagine. And the, um, particular distribution of, um, water, that we've believed is sort of omnipresent and, you know, always available is, is not really as omnipresent and available as we think. I think that growing up in um, Colorado where you could say that we're often in a drought, but you might also want to reframe that and say like, um, water scarcity is just a fact of life in the West, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's something that you become very conscious of when you see, um, you know, periods of ample water juxtaposed with periods of, uh, of water scarcity and how it affects everything around you, every bit of land, every vegetation. It's a sort of attentiveness to water that that landscape evokes that I think would be useful spread across the country as a whole. Um, because in New York, where I am, it's much easier to ignore it, but there is still this whole web work of infrastructure and resource delivery that enables us to have such great tap water here. And it's all connected to these reservoirs and in the Catskills and Hudson Valley that they protect very well. Uh, To be conscious of where water comes from and conscious of um, the meaning and effort underlying that, I think is, is both part of appreciating what we have, and being cognizant of um, the ways in which that could change, where we, we need to build resilience.
0: Mm, and that, that's so nicely said. And I, one of the things your novel did for me was to make me more kind of want to be more conscious about where water comes from it's so taken for granted uh, where i live Um, it's considered to be in in great abundance with stores of it but i was just visiting colorado this summer and it was very interesting to talk about people who were thinking of the seasons not just as this is hot and cold but this is no water and maybe water season Yes, um, and, yeah. and that just it shook me I have to say and I feel like that's Patrick Hamlin in your book he comes from the east mm-hmm. coast he, he literally has no idea um, that the situation is so bad in California and everyone is drinking this water substitute and he's like why are you drinking this and everyone in California has already moved so far beyond water as we know it that they can only remember the mango flavor um, of the particular one that they drink the most of and i just thought that was Mm -hmm. a, a really powerful thing to kind of shock the reader with
1: yeah yeah you know um one thing that really amazes me is how large this country is driving across it and and spending time sort of in um pandemic times when it wasn't as easy to travel around, it's this experience both of crossing very different landscapes um, over, you know, hours and hours of driving, but also when immersed in one landscape um, of having the physical and sensory presence of that landscape fill your whole field of vision and field of knowledge in, in such a way that it's hard to imagine things being physically and climatically different someplace Mm -hmm. else. Mm -hmm. Um, I think um, when I'm, for example, on the East coast and I'm reading about the wildfires in the West, it's very difficult to wrap your mind around the scale, the square footage of the amount of land that's being burned. The size of New Jersey, I think was burning in um, uh, Montana recently. And, yeah, yeah. It, it's a mental effort, I think, to try to lasso those different things into, into one coherent representation or understanding of, of the country. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and, and that's, I, I guess, why we're going to have to rely on art and and different kinds of media to be able to um, bring those kinds of perspectives into focus. Because they are, you walk out of your, wherever you live, and you look at the environment around you, and that is the environment um, for you. And then to understand that different parts of the planet are reacting very differently to the current crisis is, as you say, it's... It takes it takes effort. It takes work, um, but it may also take um, other forms of experience, um, either through art or other um, means. And I I worry we're we're maybe not acclimating quick enough to those to welcoming those kinds of perspectives, and instead we we look at Instagram, which is just this sort of strange mirror.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: The, um So the California of your novel, water has become a commodity for the very rich, with the majority of the population left to drink a water substitute, water, with the E replaced by a hyphen. This synthetic water is omnipresent, even coming out of the taps in some homes. This, too, is a commodity that is sold at many price points, with the least artificial version selling for hundreds of dollars an ounce. This is a perfect capitalist scam. Control the real water and make it luxury while producing the replacement that is more expensive the closer it is to the real thing. How did you come up with this capitalist mousetrap? And is it something you see functioning in regular everyday life?
1: I think um, a lot of what art was inspired by watching the bottled water industry, which is an industry sort of rife with contradictions. uh, water is best the closer it is to some idea of purity to some idea of um, sameness to what we've experienced before and at the same time to sell it better than the other brands it has to be special so how how is something exemplary of a basic need and also special and distinguished from other um, competitors a lot of the branding that you see in the bottled water industry i think is replicated in water. Um, and since this book came out, people send me advertisements all the time of uh, strange new forms of water that they see advertised near them, like um, uh, alkaline waters, mm-hmm. um, new vitamin mm-hmm. waters, oxygenated water. And it speaks, I think to this reflexive operation of the capitalist branding machine that segments up um, uh, product space and, designates like who it's for so they can push it more effectively um but as in flint i think um the people who always get the short end of the stick are um people who have less choice people who have less buying power um and and as in like most cases of um uh of environmental injustice uh the most dangerous Substances are pushed toward them. Um, So when we wander outside of the car with the main characters in in my book and we go into the surrounding neighborhoods, it's tankers of water refilled by the water truck once a week, which is unreliable, which can spring a leak, and which is of a quality that um, Patrick might not touch. And uh, Brenda and Jay, the sort of villainous producers, would definitely never get anywhere near.
0: I had an eerie experience of teaching. I taught at a um, a summer program for high school students, and there happened to be uh, a, a young woman whose family was deeply affected by the Flint. Water crisis and Mm -hmm. she said very frankly i'm i'm the only one who's who's not testing as having a you know a mental consequence because of this and my other siblings are all they have been their their emotional and mental growth has been stunted by this and probably permanently and i had at that point heard of it um and was outraged in in a kind of banal like that's terrible way. Um, but, you know, listening to the extent to which that family had to go to borrow money to buy bottled water because you'd have to have so much of it to be able yes. to cook with, wash yourself with, drink. Um, and then, you know, to find her being the, the last really hope of the family to go on and, and get a college degree. And um, at that point, I it, it turned into real outrage um, and and amazement that that it could happen anywhere. And and, yeah. and I always think it's bizarre that people say things like, how could this happen in America? Well, how could it happen to any group of human beings on, on the planet? Um, yeah. But in any case, that um, I, I feel like what you're doing with Watch Her there uh, feels so scarily present to me. Um, And it's even though there are a lot of um, marvelous uh, kind of inside jokes in the industry, I think you do a good job of keeping the weightiness of it.
1: Well, thank you. Yeah, I, um, you know, just as our idea of the default reality that operates in a you know literary novel i think needs to change i think our default understanding of what america is needs to change too and incorporate um deeply like these structural injustices and harms right that um are built into the nature of this country and i feel like that's the work that's being done um in the foreground more and more but when we register surprise at a um an injustice made public or of uh, harm done, especially to the most vulnerable populations, um, that surprise comes out of a, a place deeply held within myself too, that, uh, hasn't truly incorporated that lesson, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, yeah. In a in a kind of very dramatic change of tone, I want to talk a little bit about um, how funny this book is. I, I think you're an incredibly funny writer. Um, your other works have been noted for your your sharp wit, and I, I don't offer this praise lightly because I think it's really one of the hardest things to do as a fiction writer, maybe second only to good sex writing. There's a moment um, in the novel when you are describing what is essentially an Ikea for this synthetic (gasps) water. Would you you be willing to read a bit of this section for us?
1: Yes. Okay. Thank you. As they walk from the rotunda to the innards of the store, Patrick asks Horseshoe if there's any way to get to their destination faster. Shouldn't there be a path straight to the dedicated bulk ordering station for people on tight schedules, VIPs, elderly customers who lack stamina? But Horseshoe assures him that the story is deeply democratic in design. Every person, no matter how rich or poor, walks the same long path. There's wisdom in the path, which leads past countless fake rooms, even whole fake houses, each one decorated with care. There's an upscale metrosexual loft kitchen stocked with premium water in the now familiar diamond faceted bottles, a cozy Scandinavian kitchen with bottles of water. Cookie burst on display <laughs> next to a carved wooden bird. A petite woman with a ponytail urges shoppers to go with the flow and dream yourself into your own wider lifestyle fantasy. To Patrick, the naked commercialism on display here, the marketing muscle that's gone into making a basic drinking liquid aspirational, is repulsive. But when he sees the girls stripping off t shirts to reveal genuine bikini tops, Taking selfies in front of a replica Caribbean beach with bottles of tropical infused water coconut vacation hoisted toward the camera lens, he can't help but wish he were young again and able to join in the pageant without self-awareness, without guilt. Why is there a whole store for water? the arm asks, his head swiveling. It's not water, Orsho explains patiently. It's water. He says the last half of the word with a harsh, downward intonation, vaguely robotic. He examines a courtesy-sized bottle of water, basic, then shakes the liquid vigorously until a layer of faintly blue froth forms at the top. He hands it over to Patrick. Is he making a joke, Patrick says to Horseshoe, who shrugs. The plastic bottle is warm in his hands as Patrick stares at the thin blue film swirling on the surface. It reminds him of the little rafts of bubbles he would spot riding the calmer, shore-bound waves when he went to the cape as a child, detergents from nearby factories, his mother told him. What's that floating on top, he asks, handing it over to Horseshoe for inspection. Horseshoe squints through the cheap plastic and immediately looks bored. That'll go away if you just leave it alone for a while, but what is it? I don't know what you call it, Horseshoe says. It's fine. It'll disappear. My buddy who's in science told me that it happens because water is a little more social than the old stuff. <laughs> it boils at a slightly higher temperature and freezes at a slightly lower temperature. It forms stronger bonds inside the molecule and with other molecules. So ton- sometimes they clump together, hence the occasional foam that doesn't really matter and that nobody cares about. I thought water was supposed to be the same thing, though. Yeah, it's the same. Horse, she says, distracted. It's the same as water, just a little bit more so.
0: <laughs> thank, thank you so much. Um, I, I love how much you capture the the labyrinthine Dante's eighth level of hell qualities of IkeA um, but it's the Huga burst that makes me laugh out time every time this devil's brew you've concocted of Scandinavian <laughs> culture um, are built around comfort and relaxation mixed with energy drink marketing for a poisonous water replacement um, do you know that you're being funny do you have a sixth sense for it and is it something that you've practiced Practiced and worked through, and do you have someone that you you can kind of test things out with? <laughs>
1: um, y- you know, my partner and I. He's also a writer, and his work is very funny. Um, his name's Alex Gilvery, and his first novel is called "From the Memoirs of Non-Enemy a Non-Enemy Combatant." So I actually
0: teach it in, in-
1: Guantanamo. You teach it? It's yeah, amazing. I teach
0: it in my um, uh, the te- the terrorist imaginary class. But sorry, <gasps> I interrupted you. It's a great oh, that's novel. So
1: great. Oh, he's going to love that. Um, you know, uh, we try out material in each other a lot. And I also think that, um, both he and I write about some pretty constricting and pretty depressing, um, material and you do it alone for the bulk of the time. Um, it, it's a very solitary effort. So, The degree to which you can continue with your project, continue dwelling in that space um, in that fictional world is often determined by um, how much you can make it bearable for yourself by cracking a joke that breaks the tension and and lets a little bit of air into your own um, writing mood. Um, So I think that I, I use humor as a way to keep myself moving through the text as I'm writing it. And I also think that um, you know to sell a reader on the idea of you know spend 350 pages in a world that's running out of water and is losing its mind <laughs> is kind of a tall order. Yeah. But when there's when there's some humor to draw you through it and keep you um, in a very sort of affective state, then you can sit with the problem longer. Um, which also has to do, I think, you know, sometimes the climate change discourse can be very oppressive and very hopeless and Mm -hmm. and to mix more kinds of rhetoric in there like things that you can do that are practical personal stories that shift the scale of it from the, the global to something empathizable and and then venues for what the world could thinking through what the world could be like um in a world that wasn't so blatantly extractive and exploitative i think like these are all um ways of varying the tone so we can continue to be close to the problem and dwell with it.
0: Yeah, and, and it made me it made me think of the sort of the classical um, thinking around kind of comedy as the as the genre that can can make change and can can have real effects in a in a text. And I think that's true. And I think you're you're proving it there while also making us enjoy the the ride a little bit more. This is certainly a, a climate novel, um, and it's either pre dystopia or mid dystopia, oh. um, but I think of something new under the sun as also a meditation on privacy. Cassidy Carter's life as a child actor trying to be an adult actor is defined in part by the constant surveillance of her public life and the speculation about her private life that happens in online forums. One fan starts a discussion of the possible hidden reasons for Cassidy's quote, erratic public behavior. Clearly this is partially a function of celebrity, but are you also weighing in on the fate of everyday people's privacy in an age of social media?
1: Mm, That's such a good question. And I also see how it connects to the course that you're teaching this semester and um, your own research interests. I, I think you're exactly right. Like um, it, It is a function of celebrity, but it is also about what we yield up to the world of social media um, and what we gladly yield up and what's taken from us, Um, seen through the perspective of um, a character who feels this extractive gaze more often and more deeply than anyone else. Like, I um, am fascinated when I've spoken to actors about these sorts of psychological weights and experiences that go along with making your face um a public resource in a way like to to begin seeing your face posted over the world recognizing yourself in places where you shouldn't be according to your own logic of embodiment and and knowledge of where you're standing in the physical space um i remember one interview with an actress i did recently who was in a forthcoming movie that's a basically uh Two, two part play or a two person play um, where her face holds the weight, the camera's gaze for these very long shots, including um, some speech and reaction and I- emotion. Um, so she talked about how tired she was after um, these shots because it felt like something had been sapped from her, something had been uh, taken wow. out from her, <laughs> and um, I, I think that. Even if you do a, a burst of selfies, trying to get the right one, you feel a little bit of that too—the mm. sense that you're a little hollowed out, something's a little missing. You're you're more exhausted than you should be for having just stood around pressing a button every so often. Mm. Um, it's um, something psychological and spiritual that I think is drawn from you when you scatter your image throughout the world um and when it leaves your control in a way um so i think that looking at cassidy she's something of a canary in a coal mine for this she's experiencing the most of it but we're all experiencing some of it
0: Hmm. i didn't realize until you said the the, the phrase extractive gaze, how much there is the logic of extraction in both, uh, the use of the planet for endless commodifiable resources and the kind of resources that we draw from, from people either willingly or unwillingly. Um, and thinking about Cassidy running into her nose all the time, people who've had mm. surgery to, to have a nose just like hers and seeing it in this incredibly like imagine kind of traumatizing and depersonalizing way and the extraction logic as working in both ways, um, which I think is really brilliant.
1: Yeah, um I, I think like one of the things I like about Cassidy too those is I personally would feel like um well I am nobody I have no nose. Everyone is sort of like me. Like I I I'm scattered up and decentered. And she sort of will resolutely insist, like, no, that's my nose. That girl's walking around with my nose. Who does she think she is, even if she is getting a royalty (laughs) from it and benefiting in that way? Um.
0: Yeah, Um, yeah, that's amazing. And so frightening. (laughs) So I want to ask you a really tangential question, but it's just (laughs) something that is in my limited pop culture purview, but that is the uh, the show What We Do in the Shadows, um, Taika Waititi's show about vampire roommates. Um, it's I know from your bio that you live in Staten Island, and I was wondering what you thought of this incredibly interesting take on Staten Island with the vampires living there. <laughs> they have a failed attempt to take control of the city council um, and to do something Something about the raccoon problem—it it made me really love Staten Island um, and and have a, a very different vision of it. And I wonder what you think of it.
1: I mean, it's 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 spot on. I don't know if there are vampires on Staten Island, but there are um, town hall meetings like that, <laughs> and there is um, a. <laughs> This funny way in which, like, Staten Island being part of New York City, but not really being part of New York City, being the last borough people remember when they name all the boroughs, Mm. um, and carrying the nickname the Forgotten Borough, um, it, it, it like, uh, it leads into... The sort of cultural divergence that has some of the inconveniences of New York City, um, but also the inefficiencies mm. of, of <laughs> any other place put together in one unholy um, amalgamation. <laughs> um, so, like, uh, I, I sometimes think of it as a bad luck borough in a in a gentle way because. It's the first place where I broke a bone. Like mm. sinkholes open up in different places. A sinkhole just opened up on the path I walked to the ferry. And um, it makes me have to walk a long way around past um, this herd of geese that are sometimes very aggressive um, to get there. All this stuff you wouldn't think of as being urban, but which I guess can only happen when things are condensed as they are in a slightly urban space. When we um, built the courthouse here, uh, they had to halt construction for a while because they found a lot of unmarked, um, dead bodies, uh, Whoa. because it used to be a quarantine area before Ellis Island was open. And in those days, if you, uh, died in quarantine, they just buried you somewhere oh and it, it was here in Staten, Island. So, <laughs> in Staten Island. So there is definitely like, um, you know, a spurious, like inconvenient obstacle filled, um, and and sometimes like slightly grisly history here, I think.
0: My um, my only strong memory of Staten Island is from running the the New York City Marathon, and y- you wait for a really long time in Staten Island um, <laughs> <laughs> before you yes. start. And when you start, um, I, I luckily this guy who was running next to me said, "Make sure you go on the upper." section of the bridge and he didn't say why uh, but i thought okay he seems experienced i'll go in the upper (laughs) section it's because everyone has been waiting so long and they need to pee and so all these people pee on once they start on over the bridge but the winds whip the the urine uh. into the the lower section of the bridge. So if you've had uh. the bad fortune of of running in the lower section, then everyone's pee um, from the marathon ends up on you at the very beginning of your twenty six miles. Um, oh so gosh. that is my very <laughs> strong and vivid memory of Staten Island.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean that is a hot tip I will remember if I ever <laughs> have on the marathon across that bridge <laughs> Yeah, hold,
0: hold it dear to your heart um, yeah. I wanted to end by asking uh, if you are a big eco-fiction climate fiction reader and if so um, what could you reckon, uh, recommend for us and also I, I know that you did do um, reading and, and research for this project would you be willing to recommend some of those source books as well
1: Absolutely and um, I, I do read a lot of eco fiction um, or climate fiction, but I think that w- what I read from my own mental health reasons tends to be focused on authors who can stretch away from the dystopian and uh-huh. and give me something that feels um, also invigorating and uh, lifelike in some way like I, I love Jeff Vandermeer's work because mm-hmm. he does such an amazing job animating non-human. Um, actors and characters in his work so uh, the feeling of having a world that is maybe decimated but is still full of life um it is something that helps keep me going um i loved Clayd by james bradley um which is a sort of also post-apocalyptic narrative but very very human and very deeply felt and um I find a lot in both like work by naturalists or especially, um, indigenous perspectives like Robin Wall Kimmerer and her braiding sweet grass where you get to be back in touch with plant life and animal life through these intricate descriptions and explorations, um, of what a cattail can be used for, for example, and how, um, uh, a cattail's life cycle, uh, uh, sort of unfolds like animating the natural world making you grateful for what what we still have and more connected to it um is really an important part of maintaining yourself in an active act, affective state that can continue to uh live with the problem act on the problem and find ways to source effort. <laughs> Um, to to do direct action for this book I read a lot of great things there's a great series of California naturalist guides to specific things like California grasses, California fire um, and I found a lot of great details there but also just um, uh, to get into the grain of the land like a, a lot of things that seem, um, maybe not important enough to extract and foreground in in a novel but which provide this sort of plane against which a really brilliant fact or description or notable um, form of vegetation stands out and then and then you can see like how this would be very important and, and crucial in your world building um i also read a lot about the bottled water industry and the plastics Hmm. industry like um jeffrey michael's uh history american plastic which um is where i found the title to this book something you under the sun was the marketing slogan that was originally used to market cellophane the first plastic, which was also naturally derived wow yeah and then one final thing that i love to recommend to people is this book by Tristan Gooley, who's a natural navigator, um, I think in Scotland. He's in the UK anyway. And he has this book called The Lost Art of Reading Nature's Signs that tells you sort of how to navigate a landscape using cues about direction, wind direction, and terrain to find paths through, but also stay on, for example, a true north path. Um, And the attentiveness that he can bring to the way that you see what otherwise would just be a swath of terrain. Like, um, that was a big help for me in writing landscape scenes and to thinking about what should stick out and what can exist in the background because there's always too much to describe.
0: Mm -hmm. These sound so fascinating, and I love the idea of looking at um, California natural guides, um, naturalism <clears> guides. I think that's lovely. And braiding sweet grass has been recommended to me by so many people. I feel like now it's uh, it's an absolute that I have to that I have to pick it up.
1: Yeah, it's such a nourishing book, and um, it's also a book um, in a subterranean way, you know about. Our um, dissatisfaction with capitalism, our dissatisfaction with the regimented uh, and profit driven, extraction driven modes of life that capitalism implies for us. Mm -hmm. And she grounds it all in, in like this really deep understanding of nature as both a botanist and um, as a person with a cultural relationship to indigeneity I can't recommend that book more
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it is it's absolutely going on my on my bedside table and um, these are such great recommendations I really enjoyed our conversation it was so engaging
1: Thank
0: Um, thank you very much Alexandra
1: thank you and I hope you have a great day
0: thanks you too That's it for this week's episode. My huge thanks to the brilliant and gracious Alexandra Kleeman, whose recommendations will be linked to on our show page at burnedbybooks.com, where you can buy copies of all the books, including something new under the sun, at indie bookstores. Please find all of our past episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify, where you can follow the show and suggest it to friends with untreatable book addictions. Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.